Good morning, everyone. We are uh, beginning a new series today. Over the course of uh, the next couple of months, we're going to spend some time journeying through a specific section of the Gospel of Mark. In our preaching rhythm, I regularly want to come back to the Gospels. And last year, we spent quite a bit of time in the Gospel of Luke. This year, we're going to zero in on Mark and look at a series called Re-Envisioning Discipleship in the Gospel of Mark. Now, this section we're going to look at is known as uh, the discipleship section of the gospel. And up to this point, things have been happening at a pretty frantic pace. In the first eight chapters of Mark, the gospel writer has used the word immediately 32 times. They're just going from one thing to the next, and it's dramatic. There are healings, and Jesus is feeding thousands of people out of a couple loaves of bread, and he is calming seas. And now the tone changes, and things slow down. Over this section, Jesus and his disciples are slowly walking from Bethsaida to Jerusalem. It's about the distance from here to Seattle. You can imagine just walking that slowly with Jesus. And as they are on their way to Jerusalem, we discover that the disciples are also on the way. They are in process. They have a whole lot to learn from Jesus on the way. This section of Mark is bookended by two stories of healing, where blind, the blind are healed. And you probably noted, as you listen to the text today, that there's a really interesting healing story. It's very different than almost all the other healing stories in the Gospels, in that the healing doesn't take effect at first. Jesus heals this blind man, but he's still blurry. He still needs Jesus to lay his hands on his eyes a second time. And most commentators note that this is a parable in many ways for the disciples. They half see Jesus, they name him correctly, but things are still a little bit blurry. And so over the course of this journey, Jesus is helping them re-envision who he is and what it means to follow him. N.T. Wright just names it this way, Mark has put together the story of the blind man receiving sight and the blind disciples gaining their insight in order to highlight what's going on in the second story by means of the parallel with the first. This is a story about re-envisioning, about gaining sight. The reality is, though, like the disciples, I think we too sometimes need some correction of our vision, do we not? Even though we have walked, many of us, with Jesus for a long time, There is a danger that we sometimes only half see or our vision gets blurred or distorted from time to time. Could it be that we need Jesus to lay his hands on our eyes yet again? Could it be that he has more to show us? It's frustrating when we can only half see, is it not? Those who have ever lost glasses or contacts uh, at an inopportune time can know the frustration of not being able to see clearly. It can cause us to end up lost or maybe even injured. And I think the same dynamic is at play in the spiritual journey, only that the stakes are now higher. That if we only half see, we can end up lost or we could end up hurt. A mentor of mine, uh, Trevor Hudson, once said that if we have a dysfunctional picture of God, it can translate into a dysfunctional way of living. So, for example, if I have a picture of God as this kind of angry tyrant who is keeping score of all my behavior, you can imagine how that's going to play out in how I live my life. 
I'm going to live my life in the bondage of legalism, overwhelmed, trying to prove myself, living life at a feverish pace, trying to show that I'm good enough. A dysfunctional picture of God leads to a dysfunctional, dysfunctional way of living. The flip side is also true. If I have this picture of God as this benevolent grandfather who just wants to give me everything I want, I'm going to end up disappointed and discouraged when I inevitably am tested, when I face trials, when I face suffering. That's why A.W. Tozer once said that what we think of when we picture God is one of the most important things about us. It determines so much about how we journey through this life. And so this fall, I want to invite Jesus to lay his hands on our eyes yet again. Could it be that he wants to restore our vision to clarify who he is, what it means to follow him? I want to anchor our conversation today around this question that he poses to Peter, and it's the question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter is technically correct, he half sees, and yet like the disciple, there's some distort, like the blind man, there's some distortion, some things that are still blurry for Peter. He says, you are the Messiah, the anointed one. This is the correct answer. It's the label that is given to Jesus at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. It is a label that Jesus will assume when he is arrested. And yet, as the story unfolds, we see that Peter's perception of what the Messiah is is very different than Jesus' vision for the Messiah. Next week, we'll see uh, that Jesus actually has to rebuke Peter because Peter is confused when Jesus starts talking about being arrested and suffering and facing the cross. Peter is immersed in a political and theological environment that has shaped a different view of the Messiah. He is expecting someone who would come with more strength and power, who would harness an army, who would help own the Romans. Let's get these guys out of power so that we can experience our own sense of power and freedom from the oppression we are under. And so when he starts hearing this word about sacrificing and and offering ourselves and being a servant of all, Peter is confused. He sees, but only partially. And this is why Jesus silenced Peter. He he doesn't want Peter to go out uh, speaking on his behalf until his vision is corrected. I don't know, have any of you ever uh, Googled your name before? It's kind of an interesting thing to just Google your name. And I found out a number of years ago that there's only one famous person with the name Philip Rushton, and it's not someone I want to be aligned with. There's this, uh, John Philippe Rushton was a sociologist from Canada who is denounced as being racist. And he, so when you Google search Philip Rushton, it's like the Southern Poverty Law Center puts him on the, uh, on the list of people to avoid. And he has this theory that some races are just naturally smarter than others. Well, uh, a number of years ago, back when blogging was kind of a popular thing, I was writing a lot of articles and blogging. And someone posted one of my articles and it got shared around a little bit on Facebook. And in the comment section, somebody said, what are you posting this for? Isn't this guy a total racist? And as you can imagine, I jumped on quickly and said, that's not me. I'm somebody else. Here's a link, you know. And I, as I think about that, I, I imagine how Jesus must feel when he is misrepresented. When people in the name of Jesus begin to speak things that are so contrary to who he is. 
And that's why I believe he acts uh, with intensity here, silencing Peter. Peter, before you go out starting to proclaim who I am, we need to correct your vision. We need to correct your vision. Peter sees, but only partially so. And I I just wonder if that's where we come today. I want to extend this question to you and ask, who, who do you say that Jesus is? I'd invite us this fall to really wrestle with this question. Like Peter, could it be that we have our terminology right, our theology right, and yet at times our our vision can be distorted? We may come to this text feeling like we're in a safer place than Peter. We, after all, know the rest of the story. We have the New Testament. We've celebrated Good Friday many times, right? We might even look down on Peter. Oh, Peter, if only you knew. You'll figure it out soon enough, right? Can I invite us, though, instead to come in humbly to this text, to be open to the ways that the vision we have of Jesus can be twisted, can be distorted at times. Like Peter, we live in a context where the name of Jesus is often twisted and distorted, is it not? There are both external factors and internal factors that can over time, in subtle ways, begin to twist that picture of who God is and what it means to follow him. Externally right now, there are many who speak on behalf of Jesus that I believe often misrepresent his name. I was reading an article by Daniel Williams in Christianity Today uh, about a, a couple weeks ago. He's a historian, and he was surveying a number of recent studies done by the Pew Research Forum to just understand the religious landscape of America. And what he's noticing that is happening more and more in our country is that those who claim to be evangelical Christians are more and more actually disassociated with the church and disassociated with the central tenets of our faith. What this means is that many people who claim to be representing the faith in our culture are not actually being discipled by Jesus. They are not connected to a local church as much. It's growing in numbers. And as a result, what we see in our culture right now is this unholy juxtaposition of Christianity and a form of nationalism that takes on a violent and militant and aggressive view of power that is very contrary to the Jesus that we see in Scripture I think it's important for us to just name that because many times the way Jesus is represented isn't representative of the Jesus that we see in our culture. This happens in other ways. I think there is also an unholy juxtaposition, a placing together of Christianity and some of the values of consumerism in our culture. And so we often have a picture of Jesus as one who promises material and worldly success and wealth and and health if we would just follow him. We have a, a therapeutic Jesus, a God who is there to just make our life great this side of heaven. The problem is that as we walk the road to Jerusalem... We bump into the reality of setback and struggle, and and God actually wants to do a deeper healing that sometimes comes through the road of the cross. It feels very foreign to us in the way Jesus is sometimes communicated culturally. And so there are external dynamics that shape our view of what the Messiah 
looks like. Sometimes the view of the Messiah that is proclaiming our culture sounds a lot more like Peter's vision than Jesus' vision, and we need to name that. There are also some internal dynamics at play that I think can distort or blur our view of God. We all have a personal spiritual history, and along the way, we have likely had experiences that have shaped our view of God in some unhelpful ways. We may have had some painful church experiences. We may have bumped into suffering and disappointment. We may have had seasons where we've had an unhelpful theological formation. And those things often really shape us and stick with us. There's a well-known book, a classic by J.B. Phillips, called Your God is Too Small. And in this book, he lists a number of categories or images of God that are operative for a lot of us that miss the mark of the God of Scripture. And I wanted to list just a couple and see if they connect with any of you. He said some of us have an image of God as a resident policeman. And this is the image of a God who, again, is kind of keeping score, keeping the rules, checking up on us. You can see how that kind of picture of God can, can get us off track. Phillips talks about how sometimes our image of God is shaped by our relationship with parents or authority figures. And he has this interesting phrase. He says, sometimes our vision of God is blurred through a parental hangover. (laughs) And so we kind of see when we pray to God our Father, we're actually reading experiences of our own Father or experiences of authority that have not really mirrored God. and, And that shapes our picture of God. Another common one is the picture of God as this grand old man. And so most of our pictures of Jesus or or of of God or of an old man with a beard (laughs) wearing ancient clothes. And I think a lot of people today, their picture of God is such that God is not actually very relevant to the modern world. That when we think of God, we don't think of someone who is smart and sophisticated and intelligent, but out of date, this grand old man. (laughs) I think I've shared... Or uh, Phillips references a study where they asked a number of 12th graders if they thought, they, if they thought God knew how radar worked. And their, their instinct was to say no, most of them. And then they laughed, like, of course he would. But the reflex revealed their primary image of God is one that doesn't really know much. You know, I can't trust this God. And God's kind of out of date in the modern world. He doesn't know how technology works. God is just this grand old man. Uh, A couple more. One uh, that he says is we have this picture of God as a managing director, a God who's really busy in a hurry running the universe and would never have time for us. Why would he care about listening to us, right? God's got more important things to attend to. I'm reading a book by Mandy Smith right now, and she has this image of uh, when she went to God in prayer, she said, I was expecting a business meeting, and God showed up with a picnic, And I love this picture of like how our expectation is God doesn't really want to spend time. He might have an assignment for me and I got to get back to work and he'll he'll send me out. And that picture of a God is saying, let's just connect. (laughs) Let's have a picnic. Let's go on a long walk from here to Seattle at three miles an hour. I got time. Let's do this. So we have all these pictures, these internal dynamics that I think sometimes distort that picture of Jesus. So Mark is naming a problem in this text, and it's a bit discouraging as we reread Peter missing the mark so 
clearly, even after all this time with Jesus. Yet Mark, I think, gives us reason to hope. I want to speak some hope to us today. And that's that the power of this initial story of the blind man is meant to carry us through this section where the disciples are so blind. Because it reminds us that a God who has the power to heal physical blindness has the power to heal spiritual blindness. We have a God who is ready to spend time with us. Everything's going to slow down, and we're going to spend time with what one writer calls a three-mile-an-hour Jesus. We're going to walk, and patiently, he's going to work with these disciples and slowly open their eyes to a new and deeper reality. Open their eyes to actually something their heart really longs for if they can see it. Not just a temporary uh, time of power, but an eternal transformation. An opportunity for them to be free, to walk with Jesus in freedom, to live a life that will truly work, a life that will carry into eternity. And so Jesus, with great patience and with great love, walks with them, correcting their vision. And my hope is that God wants to meet with us, commune with us this fall, that with patience and with power, he has the ability to open our eyes, to heal some of these images that are throwing off our walk, that are leading us to be be lost and maybe injured. I believe God wants to do some healing work with us. So the, the challenge that I want to lead with as we, as we head into this series this fall is really to allow Jesus to be Jesus. I want to lift up a quote I think I've referenced before, but I love circling back to this, and I want to take it one step further today. This is from Bill Robinson, and he, uh, he says this, we've got to let Jesus be Jesus. And if you decide not to follow him, just let, let's make sure it's the real Jesus you decide not to follow, not the picture painted by human lives that fall so short of Christ's example. And if you do decide to follow Jesus, let it be the real Jesus you follow, not the Jesus you manufacture to accommodate your tastes. And if you do decide to follow him, pour out your most precious gifts at his feet. But whatever you do, let Jesus be Jesus. That's my invitation to us this fall, to let Jesus be Jesus. And the question I want to ask is this, how can we let Jesus be Jesus? How can we let go of some of the distorted images and have our vision corrected? And I believe the best way that we can do that is by keeping company with the Jesus we see in the Gospels. That is our most clear picture of who Jesus is. Let's spend time immersing ourselves, walking with him to Jerusalem, keeping company with Jesus in the Gospels. I'd invite you, along with the preaching series, to to meditate on these texts. There's a sermon response guide I'm going to be putting out every week, and it's out on the Next Steps Place and online. Um, You might even consider meditating on the text throughout the week, Or spend some time this week even reading through the entire Gospel of Mark in one sitting and just noting, where am I off base or what is Jesus really like? This fall, I invite us to let Jesus be Jesus. And as we do so, I believe we might get a clearer and more beautiful vision of who God is 
and what it means to follow him. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for your patience and your grace that you desire to open our eyes so that we might see you more clearly and be set free. Lord, we thank you that you take time to walk with us, to disciple us. I pray that you would do some of that healing work in our lives this fall. We pray in your name. Amen.